Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Good morning and welcome to Q&A. Kia pai te āranga nei. Happy Easter Sunday. I'm Jack Tame. Today, getting our kids back to school. We can tell you when the Ministry of Education hopes to start getting students back in class for face-to-face -face learning. When we move from level four to level three, that doesn't mean that suddenly you know, everything goes back to normal. Um, even if we've got schools and early learning services starting to open, they won't necessarily be fully open or open for everybody at that point. Farmers want a break from freshwater regulations because they're one of the few industries able to keep earning export dollars. Should they get it? And then the myriad reactions to life in lockdown. I own a business and it has, yeah. We've been shut down, so no work, no money. I've actually enjoyed it quite a lot. It's just really stressful with the, mentally stressful with the work. We will have that story soon. Cautiously optimistic, those are the words of the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern as she and public health officials monitored the number of COVID-19 cases in New Zealand this week. The latest update from the Ministry of Health shows 29 new confirmed or likely cases of COVID-19. That takes our total number of cases to 1,312. Four New Zealanders have died. Worldwide, the death toll is now more than 100,000. Overnight, the United States passed 20,000 deaths, meaning the world's biggest economy has recorded more fatalities than any other country. But if we can trust the data, New Zealand is successfully flattening the curve, with significantly fewer new cases than this time last week. But does that mean we should lift the lockdown? Dr Aisha Verrill is an epidemiologist and infectious disease expert with the University of Otago, based in Pōneke, Wellington. Tēnā koe, welcome back to Q&A. Morning. New Zealand recorded two deaths yesterday. What message does that send to people who might be feeling a bit complacent about the lockdown? Yeah, it, it's a reminder of how serious the illness is. That even in our in our case numbers overall are small, there are some people dying. And I know people are quick to say, "Oh yes, but these people were were frail, had other conditions." That might be true, but when you look overseas and where there are large numbers of deaths, many of them do occur in younger and healthier people as well. So once again, just an important reminder of how serious the situation is. 29 new cases announced yesterday. What does the trend in new cases at the moment tell you? Yeah, it's very encouraging. And, you know, if we keep reductions up, if it keeps going down, let's, let's hope that's all good signs for getting out of lockdown. What do you think should happen if in the next few days those numbers continue to drop or at least we don't see a surge in new cases? Should New Zealand end the lockdown? So it should very cautiously try to come out of lockdown if we continue to see reduction in case numbers and uh, um, making sure that those clusters are all really well controlled. There might be more cases in association with the clusters, but they should be people we knew about who were already in isolation um, through contact tracing. So I'll be looking at those uh, details as, as well before thinking it's, it's safe to move out of lockdown. Very cautiously moving out of lockdown. And what does yeah. that actually look like? Right, so um, uh, obviously there's been um, much more tightening of the restrictions at the border, which is great for preventing new cases coming in. Uh, there'll need to be a really strong public health response, so identifying uh, new cases through continued testing and then um, anyone we do find with COVID, making sure they're cared for in isolation and the contacts are traced. And then 
um, looking at all of the social distancing measures we had uh, and thinking, well, where is it safe to relax them? It certainly won't be a return to the life as we remember it in, in February all of a sudden. It will need to be a staged and carefully managed reduction in, in those restrictions. What will we be able to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll be able to have more people return to work uh, and hopefully um, uh, meeting our, our friends more, more than we currently yeah. can. Uh, and some um, return to schools. But I think one of the things I've seen come through in the in the international reports is what we've seen here as well, these clusters. And the clusters can really get away on you. If you look at them, a lot of them happen in these closed indoor environments. One of them in South Korea in two weeks led to 4,000 people, be, two and a half weeks led to 4,000 people being infected. So we need to be thinking about large indoor gatherings and how we either restrict them or make them safe. And there's a warning for New Zealand from Singapore, which has gradually eased its lockdown but has seen a surge in cases. Yeah, that's right. So Singapore's always had this, has this great public health system, great hospital system for um, looking after infectious diseases. But it's always had this risk. About a fifth or a sixth of its economy is migrant workers who work, say, in the construction industry, who live in dormitories, um, mm. maybe 12 men to a room. You can imagine in that sort of crowded environment, a disease like COVID can just rip through there. According to something on the Ministry of Health's website, they've got tens of thousands of men in quarantine at the moment because of the beginning of outbreaks in these dormitory settings. And that is really concerning because just like cruise ships, they're very hard to achieve good control in that type of crowded setting. Are there any environments in New Zealand which are comparable? So we... Um, I think the main thing is public spaces, thinking mm. about public spaces, hospitals, rest homes, where people are, are together. Obviously, we have household crowding in New Zealand, which is also a concern, but there's not thousands of people in our households. You know, they're more manageable. What about the likes of schools, restaurants, retail shops, indoor spaces where not massive groups of people, but large groups of people are relatively close to one another? Yeah, so there's two principles. One is the number of people crowding together, and two, the second is the your ability to deal with it if things go pear-shaped and you get cases from there. So, so I think one the main limiting factor on the second thing is how much public health units can contact trace, and that's really all about their staffing levels, their um, mm. uh, resourcing to be able to. Uh, um, deal with a small cluster of cases aggressively. So that that's really um, uh, either we control who's allowed in, into um, spaces with lots of people or we have a system for dealing with the fallout if, if there's an out, a cluster in one. Now, I know in the days since we spoke with you last weekend, you've been doing some work for the Ministry of Health in this space and, uh -huh. I, and, I, and we're not asking you to um, to give away anything you shouldn't right now. That being said, can you just, just tell us what good contact tracing would look like? Yeah. So good contact tracing is um, when you identify a case and you really quickly respond to that and you go back and find all the people who were exposed to that case while they were ill and also for two days prior because we know COVID can spread mm. then. You identify those people quickly 
uh, you find everyone who was within two metres for more than 15 minutes and ask, um, ask them to go into self-isolation at home. Contact tracing does not have to be perfect. You will miss some people, but it has to be done at scale and, and quickly. Why doesn't it have to be perfect? Because statistics. <laughs> you, you just need to be good enough most of the time, 80% of the time, to beat this virus. I mean, that's the amazing thing right. about COVID, is that despite how bad things got in Wuhan or that large outbreak in Korea, these simple things like putting people in isolation got control of the outbreak. And some people say it's as if it's 90% effective. Mm. So that's as good as a vaccine. Is elimination of the virus a realistic opportunity for New Zealand in the short yeah. to medium term? I think so. Um, and I th So elimination doesn't mean no cases. It means you've really suppressed the number of cases down to, you know, I think in New Zealand, something like single digits. And it means you still have to be actively managing things, um, so still active at the border and still having a strong public health response. I think it's realistic. China's probably ahead of us um, in this and that, that they are um, not having any local transmission and mostly dealing with imported cases now. And two, uh, there's a series of things you go through in elimination that um, uh, start to become chasing and finding a needle in a haystack. You start trying to find one or two cases in a district and working really hard to get them. So it's quite challenging, but we have a... We have one of the best chances in the world to do it. This time in a week, Cabinet will be considering whether or not to move New Zealand off level four. Given the picture as it presents right now with the regional clusters as we have them and the reducing number of cases, what would be your advice to Cabinet? That all depends on the other protections. If you've got a good system for arrangements in schools and workplaces, strong contact tracing and strong testing, and we'll see the cases come down a bit more. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. Dr Aisha Verrill from the University of Otago. Tēnā thanks for your time. Thanks, Jack. After the break on Q&A, we can tell you when the Ministry of Education is hoping to have our first kids back at school and what that might look like. That social distancing is really challenging in a school environment, even more so in an early childhood environment. You, you know, you can't say to kids, look, you, can you all sit two metres apart? That's just not the way those young kids work. Kia ora te whana. Welcome back to Q&A. This morning we can give you the date for when students might start returning to schools. The school holidays which were brought forward are due to end in a few days, with students expected to do at least a week's worth of learning at home. The Ministry of Education is working to provide isolated or low-income students with access to internet and devices. Two new educational channels will air on TV, one on TVNZ, the other on Māori TV. Now, we've been in touch with several schools that have been given this advice. If we come off Level 4 next week, schools could open to some students for face-to-face -face learning on April 29th. That's the Wednesday after the Anzac Day long weekend. I asked Education Minister Chris Hipkins what needs to happen before then. 
Well, look, I do want to you know, try and keep expectations quite reasonable here. And um, when we move from level four to level three, that doesn't mean that suddenly you know everything goes back to normal. Um, even if we've got schools and early learning services starting to open, they won't necessarily be fully open or open for everybody at that point. So there's still a lot of work going on around um, making sure that we've got the public health risks um, of schools and early childhood services fully understood, um, and then obviously mitigations put in place. So um, for example, um, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, we, we know that while young people are, are not as affected by COVID-19 as others, um, they can be transmitters of it to others. Mm. Um, and so we've got to make sure that we've got a really good understanding um, of all of the risks involved in reopening schools and early learning services before we go down that road. And so that's not necessarily all going to happen as we move from level four to level three. And I know it's not set in stone just yet, but that April 29th date, would that allow schools to to clean their facilities and, and allow teachers to work through some of their new working practices? Well, I guess the, you could say the education system's a little bit like an oven. Um, when you turn it off and it cools down, it takes a wee while for it to warm up again. Um, and so we do need a bit of time for, for, for teachers to get back into their classrooms and to be preparing for, for students to come back into their classrooms. It may be, in the first instance, they're able to come back into their classrooms and continue to deliver remote learning from that in school environment where the broadband connections are better and where they have access to more resources. Um, but my message to parents is um, we do need to prepare for all sorts of different scenarios. Mm. And one of those scenarios is that um, a significant number of young people may be at home for longer, even after Level 4 has finished. How much longer could, could that be? How much longer should parents be preparing for? Look, that's, that decision is going to be driven based on public health advice. So, uh, at the point that we're satisfied that mm. it's safe to have kids, um, you know, back in school and back in early learning in large numbers, then obviously we want to do that as quickly as we can. But it may be that um, some kids go back to school before others. So, it's the, the children of essential workers, for example, are clearly a priority. We do want to to get them back into into that as soon as we can, so that their parents uh, can go back to work as they as they normally would. Um, but you know, it might not be everybody back at school uh, early on in the piece. That's why we've set up a whole variety of different things, um, and, you know, including the TV channels, including having mm. hard-packed materials at home, including getting people connected to the internet who aren't connected to the internet, so that we can continue young people's learning, whatever their circumstances. Could, could you tell us a bit more about that staggering? And again, I appreciate this may or may not be something we have to consider in the coming weeks, but you said children of essential service workers might be the first to go back. Would you also consider uh, children with learning difficulties or um, senior students, for example? Yeah, look, all of that's going. All of that decision making will be on public health advice. So when the public health uh, advisors say, "Look, we think it's safe for this group of students or this number of students to go back into into an educational setting," then obviously we'll, we will act on that as quickly as we can. Um, one of the things we've got to keep in mind is the workforce. So um, we've got a number of teachers who are older or who have um, health conditions, which means that uh, we have to be careful not to put them at risk as well. So we're not necessarily going to have the entirety of the teaching work force available on day one when schools are reopened um, for face-to-face for -face teaching. But some of those teachers um, can be supporting distance learning um, in, in a very safe way. So um, it's, it's a huge logistical challenge, mm. as you can imagine, mapping out all of those scenarios and, and working out how we coordinate that, that decision-making process. Um, but all that work is being done now.
I think we can all safely expect that we won't be going from level four to level one. So when school does reopen for face-to-face -face learning, what will school look like? What will a day be like for students and staff in New Zealand schools? Um, look, it will probably be quite different and some of the activities that kids might have done at school uh, they might not be doing for a little while. So schools won't be having assemblies for a while where they're putting everybody together in the same room. Um, they will be uh, asked to um, try and limit contact as much as, as we can now of course um, that social distancing is really challenging in a school environment even more so in an early childhood environment you, you know you can't say to kids look you, can you all sit two meters apart that's just not the way those young kids work so those are all the sort of risks we've got to work through as we as we gear up for people to go back into the education system again but it's likely you know timetables will be different um, some kids may be uh, in school only part of the time and then they may be working from home some of the time similarly with teachers you know some teachers may continue to teach but they might be at home because they they have higher risk factors that means it's not safe for them to be back mm. in school um, different age groups have different uh, have different challenges so um, with students doing NCEA for example we know that social distancing is more possible there if you tell them to sit two meters apart they probably will um, on the other hand you know the toddlers not so much so all of those things have got to be worked through Principals are concerned that a, that a long shutdown would really start to have some significant impacts on children's learning. How long would schools have to be shut for face-to-face -face learning before that really starts to worry you? Well, look, we've actually got some very good distance learning models in New Zealand. So if you look at the resources supplied by Takura, the correspondence school, for example, this, this has been happening for a very, very long time. Um, and those are the sorts of resources that we're now making available in, in hard-packed material. We're posting those out to students so they can keep their learning going. Um, with the students who are doing NCEA, obviously there's some high stakes in, involved for them. We want them to be able to, to do their NCEA assessments this year. And so they are, they are right at the top of the list in terms of mm. priorities. And we're working, the Ministry of Education is working very closely with schools to make sure the hard packed materials that are being sent out for those who are using hard packed materials are able, are linking up with the, the content that they would otherwise be learning if they were in school and the content that's available if they're digitally connected as well. So we're trying to provide a consistent uh, standard of education to everyone, whether they're learning using hard materials or learning uh, online. But it's not going to be perfect yeah. uh, because, you know, if We'd have had six months to do this. We might have done it a bit better than we're doing it in three weeks, but it, it'll be a bit bumpy. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that kids will get a high standard of learning out of it. Will schools be able to provide catch-up lessons? I think that's one of the things the teaching community are already talking about. You know, once we come out of the other side of this, will there be some kids who need a bit of extra support to catch up mm. um, and what that might look like? Obviously, term two is going to be a, lo a longer term than term one because we took a few weeks off term one in order to bring the school holidays forward. Um, so, you know... All of these things are, are being worked through. We've, we've also got the ability to skift, uh, shift school holidays later in the year if we need to in order to try and mitigate um, the impacts to kids' learning. Um, it, it's going to be a bit of a it's going to be a bit of a sort of an evolving situation. So does that mean you'd be open to extending the school year into the summer holidays at the end of this year? Look, I think, you know, we're a bit, it's a bit early to be um, uh, talking about that. You know, obviously our, our key mm. focus at the moment is to make sure that kids can keep learning wherever they are. So if they're still at home, we want them to keep learning. But, but, but you're open to that at the moment. 
Yeah, and potentially in terms of school holiday activities later in mm. the year, um, if, there, if, if we're down at, say, level one, it may be that we can provide extra catch-up activity during school holidays um, for those who might need it and for, for mm. whom it might be beneficial. I think, you know, there, there'll be a lot of learning happening at home at the moment, but it might not be the same learning that would be happening if those kids were in school. Yeah. There are very few schools that don't do some kind of fundraising, fundraising, and of course many schools have relied on international students to increase their budget. Will the government be able to help those schools with the shortfall? Um, look, the government's taken the position that, um, you know, we fund to support the delivery of the curriculum and we're working really hard to fund the additional costs that go with this online uh, distance learning environment they find themselves in at the moment. So if technology is a problem, we're, we're, we're funding that. So we've got about 17,000 devices going out over the next uh, few weeks, which, which the government is funding. All the distance learning hard pack materials that are going out, the government's funding. So we're doing our best to plug that gap. Um, but I do acknowledge that you know, um, for those student, for those schools who have had significant numbers of international students, as those international students leave the country, it's unlikely mm. that they're, they're going to have the you know new international students coming in in the same numbers, and we're all going to need to do some some so, planning and preparation. So, can you help those schools? I mean, I mean, I look at the numbers. Uh, international students are worth about 180 million dollars in schools for for New Zealand. So, can the government do anything to address that shortfall? Well, I think one of the things we've got to do is, is, is not just look at the money they bring in, but they also cost some money as well. So schools mm. spend some money um, on providing education to those students that they, that they won't have to spend um, if they don't have those international students coming in. So we're going to have to look at all of all of that. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to do that modelling um, whilst we're all in, in lockdown, um, but we, we are gathering information so that we can look at what the overall picture there will be. Um, we don't want to see schools uh, suffering significant financial hardship because mm. of uh, a lack of international students, but we also have to recognise that our, our first priority for financial support has to be the, has to be New Zealand-based students. Doesn't this this highlight, though, what schools have been saying for a long time, not just to, to, to your government but to the previous government as well, that they're simply not funded sufficiently to provide a basic education? You know, I think of a conversation I had with a, a PTA member of a, of a Decile 7 school where the PTA has been fundraising to provide basic classroom supplies to teachers. Yeah, and, and, and I absolutely acknowledge that as well. Um, I don't necessarily see that international students should be the answer to that question. I think international students add a lot to our education system, and as soon as we can get back to the point where we're where we, uh, you know, actively recruiting them, I think that'll be a very good thing. But we shouldn't just see them as a source of revenue. Actually, there's a whole lot more they bring, which is really important. Um, the government, you know, our government, we've increased school funding every year, and, and just this year, in fact, mm. we gave schools extra $150 per student um, for not asking parents for donations because we do recognise that schools have been under a lot of financial pressure and we'll keep doing that, you know, we'll keep increasing school funding um, so that they, they're less reliant on those other sources of revenue. This might seem like a minor quibble to many of the more urban schools and communities in New Zealand, but, but there are many schools around New Zealand that rely on staff over the age of 70 and I think in particular of of school bus drivers over the age of 70 who, even if we move to level three, are unlikely to be able to interact with students. Have you made any provisions for those sorts of problems? Yeah, so the two workforces, I guess, that, that, that um, at the moment um, create the most anxiety as we think about reopening schools and early learning services are clearly um, school transport operators. We've got a lot of, of bus drivers who are in that 
their at-risk demographic, whether it's that they are older or, or that they have other underlying health um, conditions. Uh, and similarly, relief teachers um, and actually schools to run effectively, they rely on relief teachers, particularly in winter when people catch colds and get the flu and need the odd day off. So as we move to reopen, we've got to make sure that we've got um, systems in place um, to keep those people who are most at risk safe and and, uh, and whilst also making sure that the system can continue to operate. So there's a lot of work going on about uh, identifying where the, where, the, where the real challenges are here um, and what we might be able to do to help, help schools through those situations. That's Education Minister Chris Hipkins. Now, we have some housekeeping for you. The scheduling for Q&A has been a little changeable lately. In fact, you might be surprised to see us today. We weren't actually supposed to be on air over Easter, but we thought, given the circumstances, it was important to do a show today. However, from next week, Q&A will be going back to Monday nights for the rest of this year. We really value your support and your feedback, and we hope you will seamlessly switch Sunday mornings for Monday nights. You can join us at 9.30 p.m. on TVNZ1, our show next week will be right after Cabinet makes its decision on whether to lift New Zealand out of lockdown, so there's going to be a lot to digest. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. Post your comments on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Shortly we'll ask our panel to assess the government's response to COVID-19. But after the break, if agriculture is helping to prop up our economy at the moment, do farmers deserve a break from new environmental regulations? Green Party leader James Shaw is here. And with plenty of time to spare at the supermarket, Kiwis tell us what they're thinking of in strange times. Will we still look after everyone or will we become xenophobic and nationalistic? I'm not massively a Labour person, but I am really proud of how Jacinda Ardern is handling it. Hawke Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. Federated Farmers says now is not the time for freshwater reforms, as food producers play a big role in propping up New Zealand's export economy. But Green Party leader James Shaw sees opportunity in the gloom of COVID-19. He is with us now live. Tenak, we're welcome to Q&A. Yeah, good morning. Let us begin with the farmers, because Federated Farmers told MPs at the Epidemic Response Committee this week they want a break from those freshwater regulations. Their point is that they are playing a significant role in propping up our economy at the moment. Have they got a point? Well, Federated Farmers were saying that before the COVID-19 crisis uh, came to New Zealand, um, and there are a number of voices in the farming community who are actually saying the opposite, which is that we know that the world uh, needs feeding. Um, we also know, actually particularly in light of COVID-19, that demand for um, you know, the, the highest quality and um, cleanest sourced food is probably going to go up. Um, and therefore, the environmental story that we have to tell around our food production actually becomes more important rather than less. I mean, if you look at the situation farmers are facing at the moment, they're coming off a significant drought. We've had Mycoplasma bovis, of course. Federated Farmers estimates that the essential freshwater package in its current form could cut earnings by 10 to 30 per cent in some regions. So why not cut them a break? Well, you have to remember that these um, reforms aren't going to happen immediately. They're, they're in fact, they're not even due to start until um, after the, uh, well after the COVID recovery program um, will be well underway. Um, and they're phased in over many, many years, um, by which time actually the whole COVID-19 crisis will be behind us. 
The government is looking at the next stage of this crisis, how to stimulate the economy off the back of COVID-19. What kind of policies would the Green Party want to see in that economic stimulus? Well, Jack, the way that I think about it is that um, our children and possibly our grandchildren are going to be paying back the debt that we're currently racking up to get through this crisis for many, many decades. And if we fail to avert a climate crisis, then they are also going to be hit with a double whammy, which is they're going to be paying the costs of that also for many, many decades. So in our view, we've got a responsibility to use the money that we're borrowing from our kids now to ensure that they don't also have to pay for the costs of adapting to the effects of climate change in the future. So when you look at it, um, there are things that we actually have to deal with in this country, housing, water, uh, waste, transport, energy, uh, and in all of those areas, um, there are huge opportunities for investment, for upgrading our infrastructure, and for dealing with the long-term challenges like the climate crisis that face New Zealand. What does that look like, though? What would you like to see specifically? Well, if, if you look at what we need to do, one of the things that's going to be apparent in the coming months is we're going to have to generate a lot of employment. Um, we know that uh, construction for housing, for residential construction, um, actually employs more people per dollar spent than, say, um, you know, uh, horizontal infrastructure like uh, roads or, or, um, or water or things like that. And so if you want to focus on things that create employment but also deal with a, a really long-term challenge that New Zealand has, then we would be um, prioritising investing in the construction of housing. I'm not saying that we don't need to invest in our transport and water as well, but it does start to suggest... Uh, you know, where your priorities should land in terms of how you're spending that money. Will you support big roading projects? Well, what we've said is that, you know, we know that we've got to invest a lot uh, in the course of the coming uh, sort of months and, mm. and years in rebuilding the economy. Transport is definitely one of the areas uh, where we can do a lot there. When it comes to um, public transport, heavy rail, light rail, um, cycleways, walkways, uh, and yes, uh, in some cases, um, ensuring that we've got better quality roading. Um, those are all areas for investment. But you want to make sure that you're spending that money in the areas where economically it makes the most sense and, we, and when you're most effectively and efficiently moving people and freight around our cities and between our cities. But doesn't it economically and environmentally make sense to fast track these roading projects now? There are fewer vehicles on the roads. That means that there's less congestion, which inevitably means fewer cars waiting in line at the orange cones, which means fewer emissions. Well, Jack, the, I mean, the fact is that it makes sense to invest in every category uh, uh, during this period of time because there is less economic activity and there will be for some time to come. And so, you know, we can use that hiatus to invest in transport, but not just transport projects. I mean, that's the kind of obvious stuff that everybody looks to first. But like I said, in energy and in, in, uh, waste, actually, where we've got a huge problem in New Zealand, in housing, um, in rebuilding our schools and our hospitals and expanding them for our larger population group, all of those areas are areas where um, I think that we've got an opportunity to create employment, rebuild the economy and build a new generation of infrastructure for New Zealand. How, how might we speed up housing construction? Because this government doesn't have a stellar reputation on that front. 
Well, actually, we do. Um, so we've built more public housing uh, than any government for several decades. Um, we've got more housing consents up and running since any time since I think about 1972. The rate of house construction in both the private and the public sector is higher than it has been since I was born. Uh, and so I and how many of those 16,000 right. Kiwi build homes are going to be completed by the end of this term? Jack, the Kiwi Build is a tiny part of the overall public housing program. I think we've built something on the order of 6,000 state houses in the two and a half years that uh, we have um, uh, that we've been in office, uh, and and that is a huge increase on on previous decades. We're actually building housing faster than than we have in decades. Now, is it enough? Absolutely not. I agree with you. We actually we need to dramatically scale that up. And I think now is a time uh, where we have an opportunity to do exactly that. Shane Jones says the RMA should be, quote, disemboweled in the response to COVID-19. <laughs> uh, David Parker, the Environment Minister, has said he will be looking at ways to fast track some infrastructure projects through the consenting process. Are you happy with that? Well, we are in conversations with um, the Minister of, Finan uh, Minister of Environment about, uh, about those uh, changes. Um, certainly, we know that we are going to have to accelerate uh, that process in order to get some of this stuff done. I think Shane uses fairly colourful language, um, largely for political purposes. Um, but it is important that as we uh, go through this, that we do retain... Sure. Um, the principle is we don't just ride roughshod, ride roughshod over local communities and the environment. You but I think that there are probably ways that we can accelerate the process. So what are those ways? Um, well, like I said, we're in conversations with uh, David Parker about those at the moment. Will you have an update for, those, uh, for us on those at some point soon? Well, that's a Cabinet decision. Um, and so I, I think the Prime Minister will probably announce it once Cabinet's made a decision. It's interesting to, to consider some of the differences and similarities, isn't it, in, in the crisis that is presented by climate change and the crisis presented by COVID-19. What lessons do you think there are for the climate change movement to be taken from the coronavirus? That's, that's a really interesting question, Jack. I mean, the, the thing that I keep saying is, um, you know, because people keep saying to me, isn't this good for the environment? You know, you've got less air pollution, greenhouse gases are down, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Actually, in the long run, I think this is terrible um, because it means that people's attention is um, not on those long-term challenges. It's on the things that are in front of us. It does mean that you run the risk of making mistakes like we have recovering from previous crises where we just went back to the same old polluting economy that we had before and locked that pathway in for the future. And it also means that there's, frankly, less money to go around and people tend to retrench and say, well, we just need to focus on the essentials. And they start to think of um, the environmental services that we receive from uh, yeah. our natural world as a bit of a luxury. Um, and so I, I think that the, the great risk is that we, that we actually take our eye off the ball of the long term whilst we're dealing with a short term challenge. That is really interesting. Finally, when do you think the election should take place? Um, well, the Prime Minister has said that it's going to take place on September the 19th. Um, I think that uh, if the Electoral Commission says that they don't think that it's viable to hold it on that date, then, you know, she should consider moving it. But ultimately, I think that a bunch of politicians trying to work it out based on when they think that their polling will be at its highest is not the way to go about determining an election date. Um, ultimately, it's been set. Um, it should only change on the advice of the Electoral Commission. Do you think that's what Winston Peters is doing at the moment? 
I think that there's, well, I mean, he, he has actually said himself that his preference was to um, leave it as late as possible until sort of the end of, end of November. Mm. I just think, you know, frankly, it is the Prime Minister's prerogative to set the, the date um, under our current system. Um, but ultimately, uh, that should really be up to the, uh, up to the Electoral Commission. Green Party co-leader James Shaw. Tēnā koe, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on the show. What's next for New Zealand as we come out of lockdown and life in the supermarket queue? When you get used to it, it becomes the new normal. It's hard now and, it, and I think it will be hard for businesses and everything to start up again. I think that people need to realise that um, the economy is not like a car. You can't just put in the keys and start it again. There's preparation required, and that's what business needs. A couple of great analogies this morning. The economy is like a car. Schools are like ovens. They all take time to heat up. That was Michael Barnett, the chief executive of the Auckland Business Chamber. He's concerned about how much notice businesses will be given when we move off level four and out of lockdown. Let's get our panellists' thoughts. NZME Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan, in Pornicki, Wellington, and Auckland Councillor Efeso Collins, who's also a former lecturer in teacher education and youth development. Tēnā kōrua, happy Easter Sunday, and thank you for being with us. Efeso, I want to begin uh, with education this morning. As a former educator yourself, are you worried about kids in this period, and which kids in particular? Kia ora, Jack. Yeah, I think it's important that we understand that the Department of Internal Affairs released a report in 2018 that it was called the Digital Inclusive and Wellbeing Report, and it showed that uh, one in four uh, people are digitally excluded. That includes Māori Pacific people who are housed in social housing, the poor, the vulnerable, and senior citizens. So they're the, the groups that we should be really concerned about. We know that there are some low decile schools at the moment that are saying that up to 60% of their households don't have access to a device. Good to hear the minister mm -hmm. say that 17,000 devices are going to be handed out, but my guess is in the main that will go to senior high school students, and then they'll start looking at what's happening in primary and intermediate schools. So it does cause me concern, and as well as that, I'm also concerned for uh, students who need teacher aid support and RTLB who are going to be able to walk alongside those students and provide the extra assistance that they need. So these are some worrying times, but we've got to do what we've got to do in this situation. We have a date for a best case scenario in which some students might be able to return to schools. To repeat that date, it's April 29th, which is the Wednesday after the Anzac Day long weekend. Fran, do parents need more certainty about when students will be back to face-to-face -face learning? I don't think um, Chris Hipkins can really deliver that for at the moment. I mean, it really depends on what, what the tracking is on, in terms of the infection we're seeing in the economy, really, and, you know, within New Zealanders. So I think giving that, um, you know, potential date was, was pretty good uh, if it has to be extended. You know, people can deal with that as much as, you know, if the lockdown itself has to be extended as well. But of course, education is very, very important for our children. But these decisions and when kids go back to school for face-to-face -face learning has a massive flow-on effect for business and the economy, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it also, um, schools, if you could uh, look at it that way, uh, uh, in many respects, babysit our children. Um, so, you know, both parents can actually be at work, particularly if they're young kids. So in that sense, you do want to have some joined upness across the economy. 
um, you would hope that uh, they go back and the parents are also uh, back at work as well, you know, in that time. So, um, it, but it's difficult. They're very difficult decisions to make. But if we uh, get to the reinfection that um, was talked about by Dr. Beryl, you know, the reactivation, which we're actually seeing of the virus in other economies, I mean, we can be looking at a situation where people are in and out of various forms of lockdowns for quite a period to come. Mm. It's by no means just an even kind of outlook, frankly. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, to, to consider a country such as Singapore. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, the world was looking at Singapore and saying, oh, That's they've done right. a great job of managing this virus. They've, they've stamped it out. And, of course, they've seen a significant surge in numbers having previously lifted their lockdown. Afiso, are you worried that Kiwis are perhaps getting a little bit complacent? Yeah, that does cause me some concern. And I can understand the call by parents to try and go back to some sense of normality. The neuroscience backs that up. We like routines. The brain likes routines mm -hmm. and it wants to feel safe. And that's why I think there's such a call for people to go back to what we had. But the challenge for the education system and the schooling system is, was the schooling system actually fit for purpose going into COVID-19? And I'm not convinced it was. And so this is an opportunity for us to relook at the education system. Deloitte did a study of over 10,000 participants, and it said that people born after 1970, Generation Xs, Millennials, Generation Zers, wanted a system at work that was based on collaboration, social justice, mm. it was climate change conscious. What we need today is a schooling system that can replicate and mirror those values, social justice, climate change conscious, yeah. Uh, collaboration. And so this is an opportunity for us not just to get digital devices out to students, but to rethink and reimagine the schooling system, which for many has failed many parents. Fran, how much notice should Cabinet be providing business that we're moving off level four? Look, I think um, business needs to have its own uh, contingency plans underway now. And to some degree, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just not going to be feasible to uh, give a huge amount of notice, uh, but really what uh, business needs to be doing is preparing, you know, when they go to level three, what are the systems going to be? Are you going to have various teams working, as mm. we're already seeing in Meatworks now, so that you don't get, um, you know, con contagion right across the workplace if by chance somebody is there? And we also, uh, with the virus, and we also know that a lot of people are asymptomatic. That's what's been shown in the um, studies offshore. So how do you know about this? I, I think we're going to be working in a very different way for a very long time to come. And that's what, what business should be preparing for now. But if business has been given sufficient guidance when it comes to what levels three and two might look like? Well, we've, we've already been, I guess, um, shown uh, you know, the card, which gives you uh, an indication. But businesses also have a responsibility themselves to um, you know, prepare for their workforces to come back they have responsibilities under Health and Safety Act. Directors have responsibilities. It's not just the government laying down rules. But I understand there is a lot of work going on behind scenes on what that uh, scenario might look like. But I also think it's up to businesses to, to do that work themselves. And, and a number I have spoken with are doing that. They are imagining what that mm. future might be as they work through the various um, mm. alert systems. And we also know that from what the Prime Minister has been saying, uh, that some um, regions may go in and out of some of these um, 
uh, alert levels if we if we see more um, more outbreaks. So I, I think it's going to be quite lumpy for a long time, and we're just going to have to get used to it, frankly. Ifeso, what are your constituents telling you? Are businesses getting the information they need to know how they can operate, or even if they can operate at level three? Yeah, I think you, you've got a, a general idea of what's expected. You've got the, the levels card where, that gives people a sense and an idea of what is expected. I think the big challenge out here is the number of people who are being laid off, the number of people who now have to go and apply for benefits. Mm. And so there's no, not a whole lot of money that's in circulation. So there's probably a level of anxiety. We want the country up and running. I think the challenge is how do we accept that a country, a new New Zealand up and running is going to be different? And that's the challenge mm. for communities all over the country. And one challenge many people might not have considered is the protection of New Zealand's uh, larger companies, firms and organisations. Fran, you've been writing some interesting um, pieces on this, considering what is being done across the ditch in Australia, where the government has introduced legislation to protect Australian businesses from foreign investment, effect effectively foreign investors coming in and raiding companies uh, while their valuation is low. Do we need the same sort of protections for companies here? Yeah, it's very interesting, Jack. I got a, got a lot of interesting responses from business on that who said, for goodness sake, don't shut the door on foreign investment because we do need that. And obviously a lot of our companies do have significant foreign shareholders. Mm. But I think what we need to consider is what is the New Zealand-owned um, you know, uh, company base look like? And I guess we've had a bit of an indication from Grant Robertson that he is thinking about what are the areas the state needs to step into. But the investment bankers who also uh, talked to me talked about a big need in the market, which is not the listed companies, but the private companies sitting underneath. And they have, a lot of people I've talked to have actually put proposals into the Treasury and are also happy to jointly invest alongside government if there is a need. Fran O'Sullivan and Official Collins, we will be back with you in a couple of minutes. You probably just have time to get a mouthful of hot cross bun. Right, this is one of the stranger Easter Sundays we have experienced. No holiday getaways, no sleep-ins at the batch. And we sent our reporter Fena Owen to supermarkets in Kapiti and Horofenua this week to find out how Kiwis are coping with our peculiar new routine. Not my wildest dreams, no. Sweet. We just had a bar baby at home two or five days ago. Congratulations. <laughs> when you get used to it, it becomes the new normal. We sent our son out on bike rides and he's counting teddy bears, so, and now we're doing the Jacinda Ardern um, finding Easter eggs. I've actually enjoyed it quite a lot. My husband is waiting for an operation for a brain tumour. And I find that this time that we're having together seems to be doubly special. That's one of the good things, like unity. What about you, my dear? Would you like a water? No, because the banks are closed and everything else, like, you've got to change. You know, you can't, you've got to live in a modern world now. But you're doing internet banking and things? Yeah, but we haven't got a computer, you see. I own a business and it has, yeah. We've been shut down, so no work, no money. Both me and my husband are working from home. I work with a retirement village and retirement home. The engineers have to go in and do maintenance, 
so that the factory can run when we get there. It's, it's, it's been classed as essential, but, but other than that, yeah, we just have to wait. I'm a healthcare assistant, so I've got to be very careful. I'm interacting with a lot of elderly people. I deliver for um, foodstuffs. Just really stressful with the mentally stressful with the work. Seeing people lining up like they're in communist China, so you know it's a scary world we live in. Unreal. I mean, it says it in the results, really. I'm not massively a labour person, but I am really proud of how Jacinda Aduna's handling it. She should have closed the borders two weeks prior, earlier. Should have just closed them. Or screened people. That, that's what makes me angry, because no one else is open now, because of that reason. She's doing fine. I'll vote for her again. They were a little bit slow in stopping people coming into the country. But then again, what do you do? the world's never going to be the same. There's always going to be the threat of the uh, virus and other viruses to come. It's hard now and, it, and I think it will be hard for businesses and everything to start up again. Will we still look after everyone or we've become xenophobic and nationalistic and only look after ourselves? We have treated our planet quite well, you know, inadvertently in this time. Maybe we should take that also very seriously and, you know, make that an emergency like COVID-19. People need stuff, build stuff, you know, it'll carry on. It will be all VAs. Let's see what happens in the next few weeks. Indeed. That was uh, put together by Fenero. We're going to have your feedback in a couple of minutes. Plus, should the Prime Minister delay September's scheduled election? It's likely most of us will still be living under some level of restriction. But will that stop us going to the polls? The panel's back with their view next. Welcome back to Q&A. Let's go back to our panel, Fiso Collins and Fran O'Sullivan. I want to um, consider some of the political movements this week, and I'll begin with you, Fran. Should we change the date of the election? Yes. To win yes, and why? <laughs> Look, I think I think um, Winston Peters uh, talking about 21 November is right on the button. I think we need to get up through this period of the Prime Minister being up every day, uh, getting a huge amount of camera time. We want to see what the Cabinet's doing and how they are performing as a government and also in Parliament for some time uh, before people go off to um, election electioneer. And I also uh, believe it's, um, you know, fair for the opposition to be able to get some of that parliament time too. Afisa, what do you think? Yeah, I'm a little bit undecided here, Jack. I think in, in the end, you, I, my take on Winston Peters was he's probably going to need the extra two months to get some camera time and get his media profile up again. So you can understand that. I'm interested in James Shaw saying that we should mm. leave it up to the Electoral Commission to give advice to the Prime Minister. Look, the date's been set. I think at some stage there will be a decision on whether to push it out till November 21, mm. but this is really going to be around who's going to have airtime to be able to election there, and I think that's the issue. I know. I see, it's interesting, isn't it? We're concerned at the moment with who gets airtime, but, but shouldn't it be a question as to who we want to guide us through the response? I mean, don't we have the potential here for 
an election that is a real contest of ideas and and maybe by keeping an election in September that means that it, 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 it really leaves the response up to whatever party is elected to power. Fran? Yeah, I, and you've got a good point there, Jack. But I, but I think also um, we're still in a crisis, and it's going to t take time on both sides to deliver what that response is. Mm. I know, talking to Simon Bridges, that they are thinking about you know the economic policy which they announced prior to, how that might have to be recalibrated. But of course, um, Grant Robertson will be making policy, um, coming up with the budget, what the response is. He's already started to talk about the post-COVID-19 world as we come through mm. the crisis period. Um, you know, I think it was very interesting the way the press gallery and others sort of jumped on Simon Bridges uh, for driving to Parliament. I think that's exactly where he should be. And he should be having, you know, press conferences with the press gallery in the theatre where he's talking about things. You know, you can't just wash the opposition out. So, um, you know, it's pretty much jackal-like stuff in my view. Afisa, did the Prime Minister do the right thing with Health Minister David Clark? Uh, I, I think she should have sacked him personally. I think he should have been gone from Cabinet and taken out. She's argued that it's a distraction from the issues that are before her at the moment. Uh, look, I've written earlier this week that I think the Prime Minister's done an impeccable job in taking the nation with her. And I think when it comes to the election, Labour could well do extremely well if they stay with the September date. They could be on their own. They might not need a, a coalition partner. And that's probably why there are others who are trying to jump in for more time. But I think it was very foolish of David Clark to be off uh, at the beach and walking. And then the cycle that was a few kilometres from his house. It's just unacceptable that a minister is out on the one hand saying, you know, stay home. And then he goes and does it himself. I personally think he should have been fired. Fran, what do you think? Yes, same. Fired. Well, that's easy. Hey, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your time, especially on an Easter Sunday. I know this is um, all very unusual, but we hope you can put your feet up for the rest of the day. Thank you, Jack. That is Fran O'Sullivan and Efiso Collins. There has been a whole lot of feedback on our interviews this morning, especially our interview with Minister Chris Hipkins. Susan Osborne tweeted, as a teacher of a learning support unit for 21 students aged 13 to 21, all of whom are intellectually disabled, there is no possibility of social distancing. Many are not able to cover their coughs and are medically vulnerable. They should be the last, not the first group to return to school. Liz emailed, what about universities? Surely they can easily distance learn for the remainder of this year. And Liz Rawlings tweeted, in the interview with Chris Hipkins, there was no mention of sport in schools. I hope that sports will be banned for the rest of 2020 in schools to maintain social distancing. There has always been, uh, also been an awful lot of feedback on Q&A's schedule change. Rest assured, those decisions are made at a pay grade far, far higher than mine. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. Remember, we are moving to Monday night, so chuck it in your diary. Our first Monday show will be live right after Cabinet decides whether or not to take New Zealand out of lockdown. So that's going to be a really important show. That's on April 20th. Thanks for watching. And namihi kia koutou i ngā Thanks for your contributions. Kia pai te āranga nei. Have a great Easter. And we will see you Monday week at 9.30pm TVNZ1. Hei kona. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.